Welcome to the story of the Old Testament as we're walking through the Old Testament scriptures. Uh, and uh, we're now in the book of Exodus. Thanks for being with us. Uh, this is for week number seven for the week of February 12th through 18th. We're in Exodus chapter seven through chapter 14. And then we're going to read Psalms 31 through 35 this week as we uh, study God's word together. So uh, last week we saw... Uh, the transition from Genesis into Exodus. We saw how uh, God's uh, purposes are being fulfilled, how he rescues Moses. He appears to Moses in the burning bush. He sends Moses to Egypt, and ultimately he will bring them out of bondage uh, into the freedom uh, that God has called them to. But before then, uh, we know that there are uh, Pharaoh is going to be stubborn, Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, is going to resist this. His heart is hardened, and he refuses to let God's people go. And God decides, as he his eternal plan had always been, to show forth his great power and strength and rescuing his people from slavery to sin. And so he brings about these plagues, this series of plagues, each of which are targeting the gods of Egypt. Egypt. Uh, God will, uh, the Lord even says that um, he is bringing judgment on the gods of Egypt. Um, and so in doing all of these these various uh, plagues, whether it be the, the water turning the Nile to blood and uh, um, the Nile water turned into blood or the frogs or the flies or the gnats and so on, uh, God is here intentionally attacking the idols of Egypt. Remember, he is the I am. They are the they are the they they are the nots, uh, the ones who are not, um, and he is the one who is and who always has been and who always will be. Um, he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so here in in opposing all of the gods, all of that hold his people into bondage, he is defeating them and ultimately will redeem them through the blood of of the lamb and bring them through the waters of the Red Sea and destroy their enemies, their oppressors, in one great triumphant uh, victory uh, for his people. So as we get there, we see chapter seven, and Moses and Aaron go before Pharaoh, right? Um, we see the, the scene where Moses staff or Aaron's staff swallows up the other staffs. They become snakes, right? And they swallow up the, the staffs of uh of uh, Pharaoh's magicians. And we also see the first plague, the water turned to blood. We see the frogs, the gnats, the flies. But we read this also um, in verse Exodus chapter 8, verse 28, because Pharaoh says, um, go and sacrifice and, um, and go sacrifice to your God within the land of Egypt, right? And then Pharaoh eventually will say this, I will let you go to sacrifice to the Lord your God in the wilderness, only you must not go very far away plead for me. And so Pharaoh here is trying to bargain. He's, he's already starting to feel the pain of these plagues starting to begin to mount up after four. And so he's, he's wanting to bargain. 
with Moses and ultimately with, with God. And this right here, the first thing I want to read is called Bargaining Like Pharaoh. This is from Charles Spurgeon based upon this uh, verse 28. And uh, this is from Charles Spurgeon. He says this, This is a crafty word from the lip of the arch tyrant Pharaoh. If the poor enslaved Israelites must leave Egypt, then he bargains with them that it shall not be very far away, not too far for them to escape the terrors of his arms and the observation of his spies. After the same fashion, the world hates the nonconformity of nonconformity or the dissidence of dissent. It would rather we were more charitable and not deal with things too severely. Death to the world and burial with Christ are experiences that worldly minds treat with ridicule. And as a result, baptism, which pictures them, is almost universally neglected and even condemned. Worldly wisdom recommends the path of compromise and talks of moderation. According to this carnal policy, purity is admitted to be very desirable, but we are warned against being too precise. Truth is, of course, to be followed, but error is not to be severely denounced. Yes, says the world, be spiritually minded by all means, but do not deny yourself a little friendship with the world, the the odd journey to Vanity Fair. What's the good of denouncing this empty lifestyle when it is so fashionable and everybody does it? multitudes of professors succumb to this cunning advice to their own eternal ruin if we are going to really follow the lord we must be prepared to walk the narrow path and join moses who refused to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season we must leave behind the world's maxims its pleasure and its religion too and go far away to the place where the lord calls his sanctified ones when the town is on fire our house cannot be too far from the flames When disease is rampant, it is hard to escape it. The further from a poisonous snake, the better, and the further from worldly conformity, the better. To all true believers, let the trumpet call be sounded. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them. So Pharaoh right away is trying to bargain with God's people. He's trying to bargain and try to get a way in which to uh, develop some kind of compromise. And, and God says, no, there is no compromise here. You, you, you do as the Lord has, has commanded. We see the plague of the livestock, the boils, the hail, um, the darkness, the locusts. And eventually there's a final plague, a tenth plague that just threatened. And that is the death of the firstborn. And so we see here in, in verse 11, he, he tells them, uh, God, God uh, speaks now and is going to um, bring about a horrible final plague of judgment upon, upon Egypt. And he says this, Moses says, thus says the Lord, about midnight, I will go out in the midst of Egypt and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the hand mill, and all the firstborn of the cattle, there shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been nor ever will be again. But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. And all these your servants shall come down to me and bow down to me, saying, Get out, you and all the people who follow you. And after that, I will go out. And he went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you, that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. And so eventually we see this is where the institution of the Passover is begun. And we see the Lord uh, tells them, uh, beginning in chapter 12, verse 1, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. 
Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of the month when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. And so we see what the Lord tells. He says, put the blood above the lintel posts. And so God's people have blood all over their homes and they eat the Passover lamb. And this is to be, so the same plague that goes through all of Egypt, goes through Israel as well as Egypt. The difference is their homes are covered with the blood of the lamb. And so I want to spend some time now. We're going to really focus uh, today on Exodus 12 and and 14 um, because these are such momentous occasions. And so let's let's really think about today the redemption and how God accomplishes that in these chapters. The first thing I want to read is Exodus 12 from Exodus 12. It's about this Passover idea. It's called Tonight is the Night of Light, an Easter Vigil Meditation. Now, this is from Chad Bird, and he's writing this in relation to Easter um, and, and such. And so it's, it's a meditation. Um, and, uh, and so as you think about that, think about that's the context he's writing it in. But also it's, it's helpful because it, it helps us also tie in the whole Bible uh, through this, this Passover, what's going on. And I hope it'll be a blessing to you. He says this, This is the night when the earth is without form and void and darkness is over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God moves upon the face of the waters. Then God says, let there be light, and there is light. The seal of the darkness is broken, and the morning of the first creation breaks forth out of night. Oh, how wonderful and beyond all telling is thy mercy toward us, O God, that thou didst create us to have someone upon whom to bestow thy blessing, that thou didst create light, and that thy light we may see light, that thou most wonderfully created human nature, and yet more wonderfully redeemed it. This is the night when the earth is without form and void and darkness is over the face of the deep. And the ark of Noah moves upon the face of the waters. And while all in whose nostrils was the breath of life died, we float safely in the ark of salvation with the one whom his father named rest as the captain of our vessel. Oh, how wonderful and beyond all telling is thy mercy toward us, O God that as thy wrath burned for the evil of men, and thou didst bring this deluge upon a wicked and perverse generation, thou didst save eight souls, that likewise through this saving flood of baptism, all that has been in us from Adam and which we ourselves have added thereto, has been drowned in us and engulfed, and that sundered from the number of the unbelieving, we have been preserved dry and secure in the holy ark of Christendom. This is the night when the earth is without form and void and darkness is over the face of the Egypt and the angel of death moves upon the face of the firstborn. And while we with loins girded, feet shod and mouths full of the Passover lamb stand quietly in our blood painted homes, the Egyptians with loins burning, weeps, eyes weeping and mouths full of shrieking stand wailing in their homes now painted with the blood of their firstborn sons. Oh, how wonderful. And beyond all telling is thy mercy toward us, O God, that as the angel of death executed the firstborn of the Egyptians, he passed over our houses, baptized in the blood of the Lamb, that thou didst provide the firstborn son of heaven to be slaughtered in our place, 
and we to be painted the color of divine innocence with hyssop dipped in the bloody font. This is the night when the earth is formless and void, and darkness is over the face of thy people. For thou hast led us into the jaws of death, trapped between the waters of the Red Sea and the chariots of Egypt. But, oh, how wonderful and beyond all telling is thy mercy toward us, O God, that thou didst set thy Son as a pillar of fire between the camp of the enemy and the camp of thy church, that thou didst send thy Spirit to move upon the face of the waters, to split them open, to tear the liquid veil in two, that we might walk through dry shod, from death to life, from slavery to freedom, while Pharaoh, with all his hosts, are drowned in the collapsing flood. This is the night when the earth is formless and void, and the darkness of blood is over the face of thy son. And the night of and the Spirit of God moves out of his body as he gives up the ghost. This is the day when it is night, when the Son of God is drowned in the flood that rains down from the storm cloud of divine justice. When the Passover lamb is skewered to the cross and roasted over damning flames. When the body of Israel's Redeemer is sunk by the weight of your sins to the bottom of the Red Sea. And when the first creation comes to its Omega on the evening of the seventh day. As the God made man rests in the tomb from all his work which he has done. All for you. These are the nights when you are spared, O sinner. So repent and believe. How holy are these nights when the Lord God of Israel acts to save you calling light out of darkness, arcs out of water, free men out of bondage, dry feet out of sea floors, calling his son out of heaven, into the womb, onto the cross, down into the bloody dust, all to save you, his people Israel, to save you from yourselves, to save you from the hellish Pharaoh, to save you for his own name's sake. But this is the night from when all those nights receive their light. For this is the night when Christ, the life, arose from the dead. The seal of the grave is broken, and the morning of the new creation breaks forth out of night. This is the night when the Lord leads Adam and Eve, Abraham and and Sarah, David and Bathsheba, you and you and all of you, out of the blackness of the tomb and into the brilliance of the eighth day sun. This is the night when we receive more from Jesus than we lost in Adam when we are clothed in the skin of the Lamb of God, when death's dread angel sheathes his sword to beckon us with open arms back into the garden of heaven. This is the night when night is buried under the soil of resurrection. God says, let there be light, and there is, and there is, and there always shall be sunshine without end. Oh, how wonderful and beyond all telling is thy mercy toward us, O God that as thou didst say, let light shine out of darkness, even so thou hast shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of thy glory in the face of the resurrected Christ. How wonderful, beyond all telling, is this most holy night. So this is what he's he's saying there is, this is uh, taken, um, um, this reflection he says here in this little foot, this kind of a, Note is, this reflection borrows language and imagery from the liturgy of the Easter Vigil, which is celebrated on the night of Holy Saturday. So the Saturday right before Sunday for Easter. So you can see like what he's trying to highlight there is, is just as the night of the Passover the Lamb, the night of all these things, 
And what is happening is God is making a new creation. And that's what he's doing here in the Passover. This was a foretaste and a picture of what he was going to do in Jesus, that in this new creation, he takes us from bondage and sets us to freedom. He takes us from death and brings us to life. He takes us from a place of judgment to a place of justification and acceptance with God. And that's what's happening with the blood of Christ. Okay, so next I want to think here, this is Alistair Begg. Um, it's called Saved by Sacrifice. And because we see in Exodus chapter 12, verse 13, God says this, the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So we are saved by the sacrifice of Christ, just as these people were saved by the blood of the lamb over their homes. This is Alistair Begg. He says this, what happens in communion? Why do Christians eat the bread and drink from the cup? As we seek to answer these questions, not many of us think to look back to Moses. If we stand too close to his story, all we'll have is a truncated view of the bulrushes, burning bush, and plagues. But if we step far back enough, we will see and be able to share the glory of God's big picture. To set in motion the exodus of his people Israel, God, passing through the land in judgment, sent the last of ten plagues on Egypt, and every firstborn Egyptian was killed. The Israelite firstborns also would have died, for they were not innocent of sin, and sin leads to death. But God provided a way of escape for them through the Passover. When the Lord saw the blood of a sacrificed lamb on a doorframe, painted up using a hyssop plant, He passed over that household. In the Old Testament, this passing over was the great act of God's salvation. In and through it, God taught his people a vital principle. God saves by substitution. He saved these people because animals were sacrificed in their place. As Moses records, that night in Egypt, there was not a house where someone was not dead. A son had died or a lamb had died. God's people deserved death for their sins, but because they trusted in the sacrifice of another, as God had commanded and that God had provided, they were delivered. Every year throughout Old Testament history, God's people looked back to this event and remembered that great truth. God saves by substitution. All those years and all those feasts underlined the significance of the moment when, as John the Baptist saw Jesus coming, he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Here was someone who was God's provision to save his people from sin and set his people free, just like the Passover lamb. Israel's exodus is a foreshadowing of mankind's great exodus, when men or women, deserving God's judgment, trust in the blood that was shed on their behalf on the cross. They find freedom from sin. Every shackle is broken, just as the Israelites' chains were shed when they, when they were set free from slavery. Next time you are thinking about communion, consider the story of Moses, the burning bush and the plagues. Then connect the dots. And remember that the reason we take communion is because Jesus is our sacrifice. He is the Lamb of God. He is your substitute. You have no judgment to fear, for it lies behind you, paid and dealt with at the cross. You are on the way to the promised land. So God redeems his people by sacrifice, by the blood of the lamb at the Passover sacrifice. We see further instructions about this feast of unleavened bread in chapter 13. And then eventually uh, God leads his people out 
right? Pharaoh lets the people go. Um, and he, he, he says, get out of here, basically go, go. Um, and God's people are, are going out, um, and celebrating. They're plundering the Egyptians. They're taking all sorts of, of riches and, and such. And then they, they leave. And then we read, um, uh, eventually, uh, verse five, let's see here. It says, um, uh, when, when the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the Pharaoh, mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people. And they said, what is this we have done that we have let Israel go from serving us? So he made ready his chariot and took with his army, he took his army with him and took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army and overtook them encamped by the sea by Pi-Hahiroth in front of Baal-Zephon. So you can imagine, right? God leads his people right next to the sea, right next to a place where they could get cornered, right next to the place where here's a, a group of slaves, right? A slave nation, and they're getting ready to be terminated, right? At least we think by the world's superpower military, and Pharaoh is coming here to destroy them. But yet we see what the Lord does. What does the Lord do? They cry out, and this is fascinating, right? The people of God don't say, oh, don't worry. The Lord has done 10 plagues. He saved us through the blood of the lamb. Look what he's done so far. He can definitely save us now. They don't say that, do they? They say, Moses, is it because there's no graves in Egypt that you didn't let us die there? Um, why, why are you bringing us here so we can die? It would be better to go serve the Egyptians rather than die here. Um, and what does Moses say to the people? Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. And the Lord uh, saves Israel, we see. Um, he, he, uh, he, the, the angel of God, Jesus Christ goes, who's, he's gone before the host of Israel. He goes behind them, stands between them and their enemies, protects them. And eventually it says in verse 21, then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots and his horsemen. And in the morning watch, the Lord and the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea, that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots, and upon their horsemen. So let's see what the Lord does here. Let's reflect upon this amazing, amazing moment of salvation. This is from Chad Bird, uh, and, and I've edited uh, some of these um, like this one and some other, I think maybe one other uh, as well. I've kind of edited slightly uh, these devotions, uh, but um, this is called Rusting Chariots Found at the Bottom of the Baptistry. Um, 
it's actually originally called baptismal fonts, but since we're Baptists, we call them baptistries usually. Um, so this is, let's think about this. This is by Chad Bird. And again, I've, I've edited it slightly. He has Israel right where he wants them, a body of water in front of them, their enemies behind them, and God above ready to save. Our Lord is always undoing us that he might redo us, killing us that he might enliven us. If you like the wide open spaces of Nebraska, you probably don't like the situations in which God often places you, for he hems you in on every side, presses you between a rock and a hard place, so that there seems no way out. You feel like Joseph behind the bars of an Egyptian dungeon, like David hounded by Saul year after year, and like the Israelites trapped between the Red Sea and a red-eyed army thirsty for blood. God used Moses to tell old Pharaoh, let my people go, but then God turns right around and lets his people go down a one-way street with a pack of Egyptian wolves howling at their heels. But such are the ways of our backwards God. He's always doing things his way and not our own. He has Israel right where he wants them, a body of water in front of them, their enemies behind them, and God above ready to save. Our Lord is always undoing us, that he might redo us, killing us, that he might enliven us. He baptizes us into a Good Friday sea so that we might walk to yonder Easter shore. Our fathers were all under the cloud of God's glory and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. The Red Sea was one vast baptistry in which Israel learned that the Lord fights for them. The Spirit breathed upon these waters. They split in two like a temple veil, and through them the people of God walked into life and freedom. And behind them their enemies pursued and were buried beneath the waves. Pharaoh's chariots are rusting at the bottom of every baptistry. Your sins litter the ocean floor, never to resurface. For on the day of your baptism, there was a body of water in front of you, your enemies behind you and God above you, ready to save, and save he did. He led his people... He let you go out of bondage, out of death, out of sins into the promised land of celestial Canaan. The God who kills and makes alive has drowned all your foes and brought you safely through to life in Jesus Christ. So I think that's very helpful because um, remember, Paul connects the Red Sea crossing to a baptism of sorts. And so when we think about our baptism, what is it preaching to us? Now we know, you and I both know the water of baptism doesn't save us. It doesn't like work magically, but it is a, it's like a, a visible sermon illustration from God to us, whereby he preaches to us his truth. And so just as the, the chariots of Pharaoh and all the enemies of God's people were found rusting at the bottom of the Red Sea, so baptism preaches to us that all of our enemies and all of our sins have been left at the bottom of the sea. And so as we come it was you go into the water and then we come back out safely. It's as if it's preaching to us that it's as if all of our sins, when we come to Christ, they are, they're done away with. They're thrown into the bottom of the sea, never to resurface again and never to come back and haunt us again. That's what baptism preaches to us. So let's think about another angle as well as we think about baptism and, uh, and what it preaches to us and how it symbolizes to us the truth that is seen in the Red Sea crossing. This again is from Chad Bird, and it's called Slaying Monsters in Church, Why Baptism Should Be Rated R for Violence. Think about this as we go through the Red Sea and, and as we think about our own baptism and what it preaches to us. If we had eyes to see what really happens in baptism— we treat them as R-rated acts of violence. 
Not only is a person about to be killed, not only are we about to witness a drowning, because you think about that as a side note, right? Because that's, that's what happens. If you, if you don't pull that person back up out of the water, they will drown, right? That's, and Paul says, we were baptized into Christ's death. So baptism is a picture of drowning of sorts, of death, of, uh, of judgment in a sense, right? It's that. So that's kind of what he's getting at. Horrific monsters writhe in the water. Dragons of the sea lurk therein, and a bloody battle with crushed heads and butchered bodies is about to go down. To treat baptism as cute or sentimental or symbolic is a lie. Abandon all such foolish notions. Every baptism is war. It doesn't matter if your church uses a gallon of water or a lake. At the bottom is an unseen drain, a trap door, which opens to suck down the person into a black sea teeming with evil, chaotic monsters fanged and fiery and fierce. When we baptize, we plunge a human being into the liquid front lines of a war. A world of evil is arrayed against them. They are captive to the chaos, hearts chained to an inherited death. This person is entering an ocean known by many names, the primordial waters, the Red Sea, the Jordan, and they are about to endure the most intense conflict of their lives. To grasp this, we need to enter the Old Testament mind ancient pagan mythology, and the shared waters of creation, the exodus, and baptism. The prophets and psalms pull us into a submarine. They take us down, 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 far beneath the surface of the waters to witness the war. They use the images well known in their culture of mythology. In Canaanite stories of creation, Yom personifies the chaotic sea that the god Baal creates, or excuse me, that the, that the god Baal conquers. In the Bible, God conquered, God divides the sea with his strength, Psalm 74, verse 13. Again in mythology, Baal slays the sea dragon known as Leviathan. But the psalmist sings that Yahweh crushed the heads of Leviathan, Psalm 74, verse 14. He also broke the heads of the sea monsters in the waters, Psalm 74, 13. God, in fashioning the world, brings order out of the formless and void waters that he initially created. For creation is to be as God intends it. War must happen. So he's killing the monsters, slaying the water dragons, crushing heads. Creation's waters are evil's liquid grave. But there's even more. The crossing of the Red Sea is like creation number two. Isaiah, again echoing mythologies well known in the culture, says to the Lord, Awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord. Awake, as in days of old, the generations of long ago. Was it not you who cut Rahab in pieces, who pierced the dragon? Was it not you who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep, who made the depths of the sea a way for the redeemed to pass over? Isaiah 51, verses 9 through 10. At the Red Sea, God cut Rahab in pieces. He pierced the dragon. Not only the Egyptians drowned there, their corpses floated in a sea of carnage, reddened by the blood of dragons, shed by the razor-sharp sword of the Lord of hosts. Creation and the Red Sea, dragons and sea monsters, blood and gore and war. What does all this have to do with baptism? Everything. The entire biblical story of water and war comes to a head when Jesus steps into the Jordan to be baptized by John. As the crossing of the Red Sea was a replay of creation, so when Israel crossed the Jordan, it was a replay of the Red Sea. 
The narrative river flows from creation to the Red Sea to the Jordan. This river, though physically shallow, is unfathomably deep. When Jesus steps into the Jordan, he enters the vast Black Sea, churning with monsters where Leviathan, Rahab, and the dragon lurk. There stands John, the embodiment of the Old Testament, the last and greatest prophet, who pours the water of war upon the head of Yahweh incarnate. Or we would say, I mean, we would say that he was put into um, the water, wouldn't we? That's what we as Baptists would say. Creation is replayed. The Red Sea happens once more. The creator yet again, though this time as a man, crushes the heads of Leviathan and smashes the skulls of the sea monsters in the waters. And as he did at the Red Sea, the God of War cuts Rahab in pieces and pierces the dragon. In one swift movement, as God stands in the Jordan, dripping wet, he unsheathes and swings his mighty celestial sword to behead evil, smash monsters, execute dragons, and thus wring order out of chaos. In response, the heavens open, the Father bears witness that this is his Son, and the Spirit alights upon the one who brings peace by ending war. When people are baptized, time is transcended. They go back to the Jordan, and the Jordan comes forward to them. In a single splash or a single dunk, they enter the water, the war. All rolled into one liquid moment is creation, the Red Sea, the Israelites' crossing of the Jordan, Jesus' baptism in the Jordan, his life, his death, his resurrection. All in one moment, it happens. In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, they in Christ and Christ in them sever the dragon's head. They're rescued from chaos and recreated as co-victors with Jesus. It's beyond amazing what our baptism preaches to us. This is a violent, life-altering altercation between chaos and order, good and evil, the creator and all the forces of darkness in the watery deeps. We, the baptized, emerge as the sons of God, the daughters of God, surrounded by cherub and wearing the crown of victory and dragging behind us the dead and waterlogged bodies of defeated dragons. That's what baptism is all about. And so as you and I think about baptism, I think it's important that we see that component, um, that it's also about, it ties in, as, as Chad Bird has done, themes of creation, the Red Sea, the crossing of the Jordan, and ultimately Jesus' baptism, to where he conquers all of our foes. And so whenever the next time you see somebody's baptism, think about uh, the fact that whenever we, whenever we are put into the water and go under the water, Remember, right, if we were to hold that person down under there, they would drown. They would die. And that is an intentional picture to us, to preach to us that um, Jesus, our Lord, went down into the water, so to speak, and fought the dragons for us, fought Satan and death and hell and the devil and our sins. But he came up because he defeated them under the water. He, through death, he defeated all of these things and brought life to us and for us. So, because we have believed in Jesus, baptism preaches to us, we too, as it were, have gone down and died with Christ and in Christ. We are co-crucified with Christ, but we are also co-resurrected with Christ as well. So, it shows our union with Jesus Christ, but in all of these, this in his victory that he's accomplished. And the water is a picture of those 
of the scene of battle. And that's what it preaches to us. And there's that's a certain component um, it, throughout the whole Bible that you see this theme. And so that's what's also being pictured and preached to us in our baptism as a visible sermon illustration to us. So the next time you think about that and you think about baptism, think about those things, the, the rusty chariots, but also the dragons being defeated. Here we go now. So as we think about Israel, right? All the Israelites were brought safely through the Red Sea. They walked on dry ground. The waters were to them on the right hand and to the left. This is a meditation from Charles Spurgeon think, called The Joy of Safety. And, um, and he's, actually stealing, he's actually taking it from the verse from Romans eleven twenty six. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. But think about this too. All Israel was saved through the Red Sea, right? They all safely made it. Think about this. When Moses sang at the Red Sea, it was his joy to know that all Israel was safe. Not a drop of spray fell from that solid wall until the last of God's Israel had safely planted his foot on the other side of the flood. That done, immediately the floods dissolved into their proper place again, but not till then. Part of that song was, you have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. In the last time, when the elect shall sing the song of Moses, the servant of God and of the Lamb, it shall be the boast of Jesus. Of all whom you have given me, I have lost none. In heaven, there shall not be a vacant throne. For all the chosen race shall meet around the throne, shall bless the conduct of his grace and make his glories known. As many as God has chosen, as many as Christ has redeemed, as many as the Spirit has called, as many as believe in Jesus shall safely cross the dividing sea. We are not all safely landed yet. Part of the host have crossed the flood, and part are crossing now. The vanguard of the army has already reached the shore. We are marching through the depths. We are at this day following hard after our leader into the heart of the sea. Let us be of good cheer. The rear guard shall soon be where the vanguard already is. The last of the chosen ones shall soon have crossed the sea, and then shall be heard the song of triumph when all are secure. But, oh, if one were absent... Oh, if one of his chosen family should be cast away, it would make an everlasting discord in the song of the redeemed and cut the strings of the harps of paradise so that music could never be exhorted from them. And so as we think about here, Spurgeon's highlighting to us this fact that all of them made it safely through and we make it safely through to the other side. Here's one more thing to think about as we consider um, uh, this from Exodus 14. This will be the last one that we read. Uh, how awesome are your deeds? And it makes us think about how great the Lord is. As we see this Red Sea crossing, we see in verse 31 um, that they believed, the people feared the Lord, they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. And then next week we'll read the, the chapter 15 where they sing the song of Moses. They, they praise the Lord. Uh, but here, this is by Donovan Riley. It's called, How Awesome Are Your Deeds? Imagine seeing the waters of the Red Sea part. How many of our jaws would have dropped at the sight? How many of us would have thought, this can't be possible? But it happened. The children of Israel stood on the shore and witnessed their God do the impossible. Truly, it would have been an awesome thing to witness, but all the works of God are awesome, not just parting the Red Sea. God does the impossible so that we may know with certainty that it is our God who's at work for us. Pharaoh's magicians attempted to match God's works through sleight of hand and deception, and at first it appeared they were performing the same impossible works as Israel's God, but they couldn't keep up. They couldn't match God's power and works. 
Through the Lord's power and works, the children of Israel were rescued from the power of Pharaoh. It was such an awe-inspiring feat that many years later, the psalmist reminded Israel and their neighbors that through the power and works of God, friend and foe alike must recognize that the awesome works of God. The psalmist put it this way, Say to God, how awesome are your deeds. So great is your power that your enemies come cringing to you. Come and see what God has done. He is awesome in his deeds toward the children of man. Psalm 66 verses 3 and 5. Many people will claim they believe in a God. Many recognize a higher power created the universe and everything therein, but they are willfully blind to God's power and works. God's awesome work is being done in the air they breathe, in the food that nourishes their body, and in all the works of nature. It's one thing to acknowledge that there is a God or higher power that made everything. It's another thing altogether to confess in faith that God's work is intended to lead us to redemption from the power and works of sin, death, and Satan. Through the cross of Christ Jesus, the most awesome work of God occurred. The grace and mercy of the Lord paid for the sin of the world. At Golgotha, God provided eternal life for us. Even more than the waters of the Red Sea, the cross of Jesus compels us to exclaim, Come and see what God has done. He is awesome in his deeds toward the children of man. Standing before the cross in our homes or at our church, we see in faith that Jesus is God. We witness the awesome power and work revealed in the weakness and humiliation of his public execution. We confess the awesome power and works of God for us to friend and foe alike. We recognize and acknowledge that human power can bring a man to his knees, but only God's love put on full display at Calvary can capture a person's heart. Just like the children of Israel, we cannot rescue ourselves from our Pharaoh, who is Satan. He rules over us with his rod and staff, sin and death. His magi deceive us with their lies and deceptions in such a way that we are enslaved and unable to free ourselves from his tyranny. Only the awesome power and works of God can rescue us from our plight. God's power and works are awesome and cannot be stifled. His grace and mercy will be heard above the growls and howls of those who deny Christ Jesus as God and Savior. Like the psalmist, say to God, How awesome are your deeds! So great is your power that your enemies come cringing to you. Come and see what God has done. He is awesome in his deeds toward the children of man. Our tongues proclaim and sing about the power and works of our God alone. This preachment will be heard above the shouts of those who deny that Jesus is Lord and Savior of the world. More than that, he will protect and defend us because his power and works will be made manifest in our lives through the vocations he lays upon us. The power and works of God are made known through the impossible feats he accomplishes for us, which reach to their apex at Golgotha, where our Lord and Savior rescued us from sin, death, and Satan through his bloody suffering and death and resurrection. So now we proclaim with the children of God in every generation, how awesome are your deeds. Amen. So that's what we sing. That's what we praise God for. And we're going to see next week the song that Moses uh, leads God's people in of praise to God for his great salvation and what he's done uh, towards his chosen people and and the salvation that he offers and gives to the world in Jesus Christ. Okay, well, let's close today. I've got Psalm 33 here for you to listen to. Um, I'm assuming it's been a while since I've uploaded this. It's probably from poor Bishop Hooper again. Um, And I hope it's encouraging to you as we think about the Psalms and and their important place. I think they've 
um, for 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 quite a while now in in recent very recent church history, we have really neglected the psalms in our corporate worship and in our personal devotions as far as singing them. And so, I hope this is encouraging to you uh, to think about uh, ways in which maybe as a church or individually or as a family, you guys can begin to integrate, uh, and we can all work together to integrate the psalms into the life and worship of our of our hearts and of our church and of our families so that these prayers these songs these psalms become part of the lifeblood of our church so think about this psalm 33 and i look forward to being with you next week take care okay and god bless praise the lord shout for joy for the word of the lord is true Praise the Lord, shout for joy, you are faithful in all you do, do. Praise the Lord, shout for joy, for the word of the Lord is true. Praise the Lord, shout for joy, you are faithful in all you do, do, do. chosen